Welcome to Stanford Innovation Lab. I'm Tina Seelig, Professor of the Practice in the Department of Management Science and Engineering at Stanford University. This podcast is designed to give you a taste of the topics we explore in our classes on innovation and entrepreneurship. Today's guest is my friend and colleague, Professor Bob Sutton. This is the second part in our discussion about creative friction. Bob is a professor at Stanford School of Engineering and a core member of the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. He's a best-selling author, and his newest book, The Asshole Survival Guide, will be available in the fall. He's also launching the Friction Podcast in June, and I'm sure you'll find this new series fascinating. Bob, I'm super excited to hear the first episode of your Friction Podcast. What motivated you to do that? Well, two things motivated me to do it. One was, you've done a podcast, and you've assembled this great team, and they asked me, it's like, how can I say no to working with such wonderful people? Honestly, that's the first one. The second one is my uh, co-author, Huggy Rao, and I have kind of developed this learning model where when we don't know uh, what we're talking about on a topic we think is important, we talk to a bunch of smart people, and we can do a podcast and talk to a bunch of smart people at the same time, and, and then we can invite the various people in the audience to join us in the conversation as well. So it's part of a learning adventure. So, Bob, is friction actually needed for innovation? Can you have innovation in a frictionless environment? No. I don't, well, there's no such thing as a frictionless environment, and the question is how can you – and we're talking about different definitions of friction. One is making certain things hard to do. One thing that I would say that is good to make hard to do is – to be on too many projects and have too many things going at once because focus is so important. Uh, another, th- another thing that I would say that, that uh, you, you want to make, uh, make difficult to do would be to interrupt somebody because, I mean, there's a whole bunch of, of sort of constraints in innovation that, that I think you and I both know. And, and if we're going to use kind of the other definition of, of, uh, of friction, which is abrasion, uh, creative abrasion, that uh, part of what our jobs are as innovators is, uh, is finding people who make us uncomfortable. The other thing that comes out of the literature and the practice of constructive confrontation that's very important, um, and this is something that uh, argumentative people, friendly argumentative people like us probably uh, should pay some attention to sometime, and I, it, which is this notion that uh, there are times when you shouldn't argue, and there's two times in particular that uh, if, you, if you look at at least the practice of innovation makes sense to me, and, it, and you look how they uh, did it, the Intel model too, um, which is that when you're the early stages of idea generation, brainstorming, and you're just sort of getting ideas out on the table, if you start arguing, we're doing a brainstormer into idea three, and you start arguing about why that idea sucks, no, your idea's that's wrong because once you go down that um, ladder, you're prematurely evaluating ideas. So, so that's one point. I, it, I just want to say I had a wonderful chat in the last podcast with Emily Ma about this. Oh, Emily's so wonderful. And we basically talked all about how basically you kill the whole process oh. when you start doing that. So uh, that absolutely resonates. Well, it's, it's funny because I'll I tell a quick story about that. Uh, to tell a tale on a company I've worked with for years, but uh, they do have some uh, some issues around it, things like this. So, so one of my students years ago went to work for McKinsey uh, for summer intern. He was an MBA. And, uh, and so he'd learned brainstorming. He said, no, I was a McKinsey summer associate, whatever. And I, there wasn't much I could do. And one day we had a brainstorm. So he said, well, excited brainstorming. We learned at the D school. I know how to do it. So he said, we go in there and uh, we have an hour for the brainstorm. We spent the first hour arguing over what the categories were going to be. <laughs> then yes. he said, uh, no, 
no, the, the first half hour over what the categories were going to be, we in a brainstorm to argue what the categories are going to be. And then he said somebody made one suggestion, and we spent the, the other half of the half hour arguing what um, box it was going to go into. And that was just exactly how not to do brainstorming. I just love that example. I'd love to have a film of it, uh, which I'd play fast forward. But uh, so anyway, so that's one part. I, Emily Ma on this must be fabulous. The other part, and this is captured in the Intel motto, disagree and then commit, which is that there is a point where you're making a decision, you're arguing what needs to be done, but there also is a point, and we've all been there, where it's kind of who are you going to hire? What process are we going to implement? Where if people keep arguing and complaining and backbiting, what they do is is they actually undermine the implementation of the decision. Um, so so what happens is and and. And the now dead Andy Grove used to used to say this. He used to teach in the business school. Used to say uh, this argument. I heard this from an MBA years ago uh, when he used to teach. So what Andy would tell us was, even or especially if you disagree with a decision, you should work really hard to help people implement it perfectly. So that way, when it turns out badly, you know it's because of a bad implementation, not because it was a not not, not because, because you undermined it. Yeah, not because you undermined it. So here's what I take away from this, Bob, and uh, I think it's a really interesting insight: is that it's okay to have creative friction through the process. But at the very beginning of the process, when it's just getting born, and at the very end, when you're making the choice about what to do, those are the places where you need to really be as supportive as possible. Yes. Yeah. And I would say yes, and not yes, but I would say yes, and uh, in the implementation of whether hiring a process or a class, whatever we're doing, whatever creative project we're involved in, uh, a film, um, whatever, um, when you start hitting a point where things aren't working um, or you're worried things aren't working, to me, that's a point where you say, okay, so let's stop for a minute. And so it's literally switching cognitive gears from just implementation mode to saying, let's pretend um, we're wrong. And and, 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 and and so when you switch gears to that sort of evaluation mode, then I think you've got to start, maybe start arguing, uh, maybe start disagreeing, uh, maybe start paying, uh, painting worst possible outcome scenarios. So, so, so this idea, I, I'm not making the argument that once you make a decision that you should just, no matter how stupid it is and how bad it is and how many bad signs there are, you should keep rolling along and keep your arms it's sort of like the World War One, where they just keep going over the trenches and keep getting shot. Like, I mean, maybe they should have stopped and thought about what they were doing. And it's the same thing in life uh, that you don't want to throw good money um, or good time after bad. So, 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 uh, to me, the wisest people uh, sort of charge forward, um, and they, but they're constantly thinking, "Gee, what could be wrong?" In the back of their mind. So, I love the concept of a pre-mortem. So when you've come up with an idea that you decide you're going to work on, you at least step back and say, okay, let's look at all the places things can go wrong so that A, you can see if you're missing anything, but also essentially um, figure out how you're going to prevent those those problems from happening. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, pre-mortems, it's interesting because there's some research on pre-mortems. It's, it's, and, and it's a little bit more specific than that, at least as laid out by Gary Klan, the, the psychologist who I think at least popularized it. And his argument is uh, is what you do is you look back from the future. So you imagine that you've already failed or succeeded, and then you say what would have happened. And that ability to do time shifting rather than to just say, 
well, gee, what could go wrong? What could go right? What, what are success factors that line success factors? That's, that's not quite the logic of, of um, pre-mortem. It's more telling a story, which is it's two years from now. We're fabulously successful. What did we do? It's, it's two years from now. We're fabulously successful uh, or, or failed. What have we done? Just as a footnote, my co-author, Huggy Rao, has been doing some research on uh, pre-mortems, actually individual-level pre-mortems, and his research seems to indicate, and this is, these are good randomized field experiments with a large local software company, that if I do a pre-mortem for myself, a failure pre-mortem, and I say, well, it's six months from now, and I've just been a complete disaster as an employee, I've been fired, I'm getting terrible performance evaluations, I'm doing crummy work, uh, I'm not very good about uh, just about it doesn't help me very much. But if I do it for you, and I say, okay, so Tina, she's like you know she's just had a terrible six months at, at this software firm. If I do it for you, it helps me more than if I do it for myself. Interesting. I also think there's another way to think about looking at it is doing even a success premortem because often oh, yeah, there yeah, are negative yeah, consequences. Right. Well, sometimes there are negative consequences that are baked into something you're doing and we often don't even look at them. Okay, here's what success looks like right. and what are the things I need to be worried about even if I succeed, not just if I fail. Right, right. I think that's right. One way that, that, that I would uh, frame that uh, there's sort of two little mantras that uh, that that are actually kind of come from uh, reading research. One is uh, this notion that uh, that you should that there's never a complete success or a complete failure. So it's it's a good learning experience to look for successes and failures, and failures and success. And then the other thing, and this is I, I always write and blog about this. I stole it from Carl Weick. This is the second line I've used from Carl Weick in this podcast. The first one was uh, um, argues if you're right, listen as if you're wrong. So he makes this argument um, that uh, the question of whether or not I'm a success or a failure is a bad question because uh, usually that's a temporary condition. It doesn't provide very useful information. Um, and there's to this point we're talking about earlier. There's there's very few um, purely beautiful successes or purely absolutely terrible failures in life. There well, might- the point is there's going to be collateral damage for you know along the way, right? One of the things. Um, I, I was even thinking about doing a yeah. course uh-huh. where you look at technology and you go, okay, uh, virtual reality or robotics or artificial intelligence, uh-huh. you can project into the future great success, but there's always going to be an underbelly second. of consequences. Yeah. And, you know, for you to actually think about it, if think about if people a hundred years ago when the car was being developed, huh? had started thinking about the consequences for our social fabric, for the environment, right. had it actually thought about what would happen if you projected, you know, everybody driving cars mm-hmm. into the future, we might have made some different decisions. So I, I, so, so I would say yes, and the other thing is just because there's so much societal baggage of being labeled success and failure, they're actually both pretty bad for you because when you're a failure, you feel bad and you feel like you're a loser. And when you're success, you kind of puff up and you get stupid. So the, the question that, uh, to go back to the Carl White point, is, uh, is that am I a success or a failure is not a very useful question. The question is what am I learning? Well, you know, it reminds me of also the friction of, that comes from having, or the lack of friction that comes from having too much money. Oh. Right? A company that has too much money makes bad choices oh. because they didn't have, have the friction of having to make a decision. I mean, do I do this or this? Well, well let's just do both. I mean, there's even, when we know this, there's even 
evidence from our friends who study entrepreneurship that companies that are started during more difficult economic times tend to do uh, Google and Facebook being two by the way tend to tend to do better than ones that that are formed uh, during a sort of um, flush times and my co-author Jeff Pfeffer who is so wonderfully obnoxious he has this great line, which is, spending money is a substitute for thinking. I love this. But you know what's so fun, Bob? I love working with you because I think you and I have the perfect balance of friction. <laughs> no, I know I'm going to get – that you're going to be very comfortable giving me honest yeah, feedback. Yeah, you're going to be comfortable giving me and Exactly. <laughs> and so we can end up having some – I never take it personally. I know we can have a really meaningful debate. And I always know I come away uh, much smarter for the conversation. Yeah. Well, thank you. I come away much smarter, too, as I I think that we're going to keep arguing till the day we both die. (laughs) This was wonderful. Thank Thank you you. so, so much. Thanks so much. It's always fascinating talking with Bob. Please stay tuned for more information about his Friction podcast. Also, next week, we'll be showcasing the submissions for our Innovation Challenge in the final episode of this season. I couldn't be happier with the range of responses. This podcast is brought to you by Stanford eCorner and the Stanford Technology Ventures Program, the Entrepreneurship Center at Stanford School of Engineering. Stanford Innovation Lab is produced and edited by Eli Shell. Our digital solutions manager is Sarah Khan, with software development by Davor Senkovich. Our designer is Daniel Stusi, and communications and marketing are led by Mike Pena and Monica Yort. You can find additional podcasts, videos, and articles at eCorner.stanford.edu. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on both this podcast and our ETL series. So please follow us on Twitter and eCorner. And if you're a fan of the series, please leave a review on iTunes. Finally, remember, entrepreneurs do much more than imaginable with much less than seems possible. Whoa.